We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid. And I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Ariana Prale, in for Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, 48 million Americans use Medicare Part D to access their prescription medications. And according to a Department of Health and Human Services study from January of this year, more than 5 million Medicare beneficiaries are struggling to afford those prescriptions. Americans are already paying much more than other countries' residents for their prescription drugs. The Inflation Reduction Act is poised to address some of the prescription drug affordability challenges that Medicare recipients face. We'll talk about how and answer your questions. This is Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. The average price for brand-name prescription drugs more than doubled between 2009 and 2018 for Medicare patients. That's according to the Congressional Budget Office. And according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, between 2019 and 2020, price increases outpaced inflation for half of the drugs that Medicare covers. So the Inflation Reduction Act's plans for Medicare prescription drug pricing is being touted as a pretty big deal, a deal that can save patients hundreds to thousands of dollars a year. Patients like our First guest, David Mitchell, founder of Patients for Affordable Drugs and Patients for Affordable Drugs Now. David Mitchell, welcome to Forum. Thank you, Ariana. So, David, you were diagnosed with multiple myeloma in 2010. Can you share for us the role prescription drugs play in your treatment? Well, multiple myeloma is an incurable blood cancer. It's incurable because n- nothing works forever. Uh, myeloma is smart. It finds its way around drugs. So right now, my doctors have me on a four-drug combination. Literally, these drugs are keeping me alive. 
Uh, and the list price of these drugs is more than $900,000 a year. Ooh. Just one of those drugs uh, cost me uh, more than $16,000 a year out of pocket. Now, I'm very grateful to have these drugs, but all of them are wildly overpriced. There's no justification for the prices that uh, the drug companies are charging for these. They do it because we let them dictate the price of drugs, and we as patients are stuck saying, okay, whatever you want to charge me, I'll pay because I don't want to die. Mm -hmm. uh, the legislation uh, that was passed in the Senate over the weekend and is going to come before the House tomorrow is going to help a lot of patients like me, millions mm -hmm. of people. And what percentage of your treatment costs for multiple myeloma are the drug costs? A huge percentage for multiple myeloma. Uh, I don't have a percentage uh, that I can give you right out hand. I can say that for certain diseases like cancer, multiple sclerosis, autoimmune diseases, uh, drugs comprise a larger share uh, of the costs than for other diseases. And so if you're unlucky enough to contract a disease through no fault of your own that requires very expensive drugs to treat it, it becomes a huge burden. And for many people, you know, we have more than a half a million people in our community and they struggle. Um, you know, they cut pills in half. They don't take the recommended dose. Uh, you know, they risk their health uh, because the drugs are so expensive. Mm -hmm. And David Mitchell, how are you doing right now? Uh, well, um, that's a, always a hard question. Yeah. Uh, I'm fine. The answer is... I'm fine. Uh, this, these four drugs I've been taking for two and a half years began to stop working a couple of months ago. And so they doubled the dose of one of the four. And we don't, it, it seems to be working. We've only been through one cycle. Uh, and hopefully it will drive my cancer numbers back down. But it's a bit harder drug to take. Uh, yeah, I have a lot of fatigue, frankly. I don't often answer that question truthfully. I just say, I'm fine. But, uh, you know, the cancer is uh, we're, we're trying to get it back in good control. And I just have to deal with the consequences that come with mm. taking the medications. Well, I appreciate you being candid with us. Um, and are there new treatments for multiple myeloma being developed and how much do they cost? Yes, there are uh, new treatments and they're very exciting because in these four drugs, three of them uh, are all of the major classes of uh, multiple myeloma drugs. When I fail on these, I'll be what they call triple refractory. And then there are some new drugs, including something called CAR-T drugs, where they take your T cells out of your body, ship them to a drug company. They get re-engineered uh, to target something on the myeloma cell, and then they give them back to you. And, and those drugs are pretty effective. Um, they're, they're, they come with costs uh, in terms of the treatment itself. I, I mean, physical and mental costs. Uh, but they work. They don't work as long, maybe, as all of the, the main classes. But there are drugs, and there are more in the pipeline. 
And I tell my kids, I'm going to live till I'm 95 because they're mm-hmm. going to invent new drugs for me. Yeah. Well, let's begin breaking down the Inflation Reduction Act and how it could impact how much Medicare beneficiaries like David pay for medicine. So joining us now is Juliet Kubansky, Deputy Director of the Program on Medicare Policy at the Kaiser Family Foundation. Juliet, welcome to Forum. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So as Dave was mentioning, it's the act has passed the Senate. It's expected to pass the House Friday. Then it would go to President Biden's desk. How would it impact pres- prescription drug affordability? What are kind of the nuts and bolts breakdown? Well, I'm really glad to have started this conversation with a focus on David's story and his experiences, because I think that provides sort of a perfect example of how this drug, uh, excuse me, how this law if it becomes law, will really help people who have high drug costs. Uh, In particular, Medicare beneficiaries today, if they're enrolled in the Part D prescription drug program, which is Medicare's outpatient drug benefit, they don't have any cap on their out-of-pocket drug costs. So people like David and others who need really expensive medications can be on the hook for thousands of dollars out-of-pocket every single year in order to take the drugs that they need to maintain their health and, and survive, frankly. So this bill will, for the first time, add a cap on out-of-pocket spending to Medicare's drug benefit. That will begin in 2025. There are a couple of other important provisions in this legislation that will help to control drug spending by the federal government, which will translate into lower out-of-pocket costs for patients. One is that for the first time, Medicare will have the ability to negotiate drug prices with prescription drug companies. Right now, Medicare has no power, no role in that negotiation process. So the bill will empower the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services to negotiate drug prices. Another important provision in this bill is that it will uh, prohibit or at least help to restrict the rate at which drug prices go grow from one year to the next by imposing rebates on drug companies that do increase drug prices faster than the rate of inflation from one year to the next. So those are really th- the three key provisions in this legislation. There are certainly more that we can talk about, but those, I think, are the most important to highlight. And we're talking specifically about Medicare beneficiaries here, correct? Yes. Specifically with regard to this out-of-pocket cap of $2,000, that is for Medicare beneficiaries. Most people who have other types of insurance through their employer or maybe through the ACA marketplaces already have the benefit of an out-of-pocket spending cap on their prescription drugs. Medicare beneficiaries don't, which is kind of a strange thing. I think most people don't understand that because we are talking about a population of seniors and people with disabilities who need a lot of prescription medications and often live on limited income. So facing affordability challenges can be a real problem for this population in particular. And David Mitchell, as a Medicare beneficiary, how do you expect this bill to impact you and your pocketbook? You you alluded to it a little bit earlier, but I, if you could just add a little bit yeah. more detail. It's such a big deal. Let's start with the fact that there's going to be an out-of-pocket cap, annual out-of-pocket cap for the first time ever in Medicare Part D. I'm literally paying more than $16,000 a year. When that out-of-pocket cap fully takes effect, my maximum out-of-pocket will be $2,000 a year. I I have myeloma patients who are celebrating online and saying, this is going to change my life. It is. These are huge numbers. And also, 
the uh, the inflation uh, penalties, they won't be able to raise the price of these already very expensive drugs at will anymore. Uh, because if they do, if they raise the prices more than the rate of inflation, they'll have to pay a penalty. Both of those are going to affect me directly. Millions of other patients and a whole bunch of other myeloma patients. Well, that's that's. I'm glad to hear that you're able to celebrate some good news. David Mitchell, founder for of Patients for Affordable Drugs and Patients for Affordable Drugs Now, living with multiple myeloma since 2010. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you for having me. And to you, our listeners, we'd like to hear your stories as well. Are you struggling to afford prescription drugs? What are your questions about the prescription drug components of the Inflation Reduction Act? You can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Or give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. And we're coming up on the break shortly, um, but Juliet Kubansky, just why do Americans pay so much more for prescription drugs than people in other countries? Boy, that's the question, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, we actually don't have just one drug price in this country. We have a health insurance system where you might have insurance through your employer or Medicaid for low-income people, Medicare for older adults. Many people don't have insurance. We don't have one single government agency who plays the role in deciding which drugs will become available and, most importantly, deciding what we will pay for them. So we have lots of different payers making different decisions about how much they want to pay for medications, and that leaves drug companies with the ability to set different prices for their products, depending on the type of coverage that you have and whether your uh, insured, you know, drives down the price. So we, we, we end up in the situation where we are paying considerably more than people in other countries for the same product. And that strikes so many people as just, you know, blatantly unfair and does leave a lot of Americans making, you know, really heart-wrenching decisions about do they pay for their rent or do they pay for the prescription that they need in order to, you know, keep their health um, in good in good working order. Mm-hmm. Well, we're talking about the prescription drug components of the Inflation Reduction Act this hour. That's Juliet Kubansky, Deputy Director of the Program on Medicare Policy at the Kaiser Family Foundation. And again, you, our listeners, are invited to join us with your questions or your stories struggling to afford prescription drugs, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org, and we'll have more of our conversation after the break. I'm Ariana Prail, and for Mina Kim, you're listening to Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. The Inland Empire. It's one of the fastest growing regions in the country, and black and brown transplants from coastal areas are fueling a cultural transformation there. That's the subject of LA Times columnist Tyrone Beeson's latest installment of his My Country series. We talk with Beeson, and we want to hear from you. Have you relocated to the IE? Are you considering it? Email us at forum at kqed.org, or you can leave us a voicemail at 415-553-3300. In this hour, we've been talking about the prescription drug components of the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm with Juliet Kubansky, Deputy, Deputy Director of the Program on Medicare Policy for the Kaiser Family Foundation. And you, our listeners, again, are welcome to join the conversation. If you're struggling to afford prescription drugs or you have questions about the drug um, prescription drug components of this Inflation Reduction Act, email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're at KQED Forum. So let's dive in a little bit more into the into the weeds here. So, um, Juliet, should the legislation pass and it's assumed to how would negotiations between the federal government and pharmaceutical health companies work? So the legislation requires the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services to come up with a list of the highest spending drugs in the Medicare program. That includes the retail pharmacy drugs and drugs that are administered by physicians or in hospital outpatient settings. So you take that ranked list of drugs and you choose from the highest that are single source brand name drugs without a generic or a biosimilar alternative. And you say, Let's take 10 of those medications for 2026. We're going to negotiate the price of those 10 medications. The legislation sets a ceiling for what that negotiated price will be. But underneath that ceiling, there is a negotiation process between the secretary of HHS and drug companies to come up with what the government will call the maximum fair price. That price will become available in 2026, starting in 2026, for 10 Medicare drugs. The number of drugs subject to negotiation increases to 15 in 2027 and 2028. And then by the end of the decade, Medicare will be negotiating the price of of 20 Medicare Part B and Part D drugs. And so Michael tweets, and this is a question I was asked, why was Medicare forbidden to negotiate drug prices in the first place? And yeah, what was the rationale for prohibiting that? That is a good question. Um, The law that created Medicare's drug benefit, the Part D program, back in the early 2000s, explicitly prohibited the federal government from being involved in these drug price negotiations. The reason sort of comes down to a philosophical choice that Republicans who sort of crafted this drug benefit decided that they wanted it to be run through private plans. And the private plans were given the ability to negotiate drug prices with drug companies. Medicare, the federal government, was explicitly prohibited because they didn't want Medicare to sort of interfere, so-called interfere, in these negotiations. 
So for basically the last 20 years, this has been the law of the land. Medicare has not been empowered to play any role in drug price negotiations on behalf of Medicare beneficiaries. So we would now be giving Medicare for the first time the ability to use the bargaining power of the 65 million folks who have Medicare coverage, bring that leverage to the table in these drug price negotiations. We're talking about a very small number of drugs that will be subject to negotiation, but it will still save the government um, you know, tens of billions of dollars over the coming years. And are there concerns that certain manufacturers would opt out of the negotiation process and not provide needed drugs to Medicare patients? The law... Sorry, bill, not a law yet. <laughs> the the bill um, imposes an excise tax on manufacturers of selected drugs if they don't participate in the negotiation process. If they want to withdraw all of their drugs from coverage in the Medicare and Medicaid programs, the excise tax will be suspended. But it doesn't really make a lot of sense for manufacturers to not have their drugs covered by Medicare. Medicare is one of the largest payers of prescription drugs in this country. So manufacturers who, you know, decide to walk away from the negotiating table would be, you know, losing a lot of revenue um, from sales of their drugs to Medicare beneficiaries. So that doesn't seem to be a likely outcome. And we have a question or a comment from Lillian who tweets, I am genuinely excited about the prescription drug bill, even though it won't help me as it only covers 10 drugs for now, as you were mentioning. But it is yet another Band-Aid on a system that needs to be burned to the ground. Uh, so I guess in, in response to... Um, and of Lillian's thoughts there where it's like, this is not doing enough. It's not going far enough. I guess what's the response to where this puts us in terms of what sort of step forward? Right. Now, it, it certainly is not the solution to everybody's problem when it comes to prescription drug prices. One of, I think, the important things to know about this legislation is that it doesn't prevent manufacturers from bringing new drugs to market and setting whatever price they want for those products. And I think that is kind of been a persistent problem with how prescription drug prices work in this country. And this legislation can't or doesn't really tackle that problem. Um, but it is a first step. And frankly, you know, if you talked to me a few weeks ago, a month ago, I would not have expected to be talking with you today about this potential new law. Um, because, you know, the political prospects and hand-wringing um, and debate has been going on for several, several years. So, you know, I think it's pretty monumental that we're having this discussion right now. But, you know, to, um, you know, to the point, it's, it's not everything that everybody wants, um, but it is a good first start, and particularly for people on Medicare with really high drug costs. It will bring tremendous cost relief that is, that is very needed for that population. Let's go to caller Paul in Vallejo. Paul, you're on. Hi. Um, first, I hopefully I misheard, but when do these price changes go into effect? I think it's like two years from now or something. When do they go into effect? So the bill phases in different benefits in the coming years. With regard to the drug price negotiation provision specifically, the government starts the negotiation process next year, but the first year that those 10 negotiated prices would be available is 2026. 
but there are other changes in the legislation that will take effect much sooner. Next year, for example, the inflation rebate provision kicks in. Um, in addition, Medicare beneficiaries will pay no more than $35 a month for insulin products covered under Part B and Part D starting in 2023. That's a really important change. Vaccines covered under Medicare will be available for free starting next year. So those are some tangible benefits that people will see before some of these other provisions kick in. Okay. Well, thank you for your for your question, Paul. And Leslie asked, why is the $2,000 cap taking so long to enact? By the time it's in force, who knows who will be in control of Congress? Well, that is a good question. The $2,000 cap takes effect in 2025, but the year before that, beneficiaries will benefit from a different out-of-pocket cap. Right now, when beneficiaries have really high drug costs, they're required to pay a 5% coinsurance. 5% doesn't sound like a lot, but if the medication that you're taking costs $10,000 a month, multiply that times 5% and you get a really large number. What's happening in 2024 is that that 5% coinsurance requirement is going down to zero. So that's like a cap. In that year, beneficiaries will have to pay just over $3,000 out of pocket. And then the $2,000 cap comes in in 2025. So actually, in 2024, which is, you know, a year and a half from now, people will have the benefit of, of some out-of-pocket cost protection. Okay. Well, one prescription drug that is top of mind for many is insulin, which helps control blood sugar levels for those with diabetes. In a nutshell, what does the, bi the bill achieve for people who need insulin to live? It's helpful for people with Medicare. It will limit the monthly copayment amount that people with Medicare are required to pay for insulin products to $35 a month. Right now, people can pay much more than that, depending on the insulin product that they're taking. People wanted more. Um, policymakers wanted to extend that same $35 monthly copayment cap to people with private coverage. And frankly, neither of those $35 caps help people who don't have health insurance or who have, you know, maybe kind of crappy health insurance with a high deductible, that is not included in this bill. Um, unfortunately, the, you know, legislative debate just couldn't quite get there in terms of an agreement on those provisions. But for Medicare beneficiaries, at least, they will have this benefit of a $35 cap starting next year. Well, Beth writes, 1.6 million Americans have type 1 diabetes, often called insulin-dependent juvenile di diabetes, yet families who often pay $300 for one vial of insulin will get no help under the Inflation Reduction Act, only those on Medicare. Why? Governor Newsom said California would start making its own insulin, which would make it much more affordable. Hope that becomes a reality. Uh, yeah, maybe you can, can you touch on a little bit of what might be happening in California toward this? Yeah. So, you know, California, like other states, have taken action to bring prescription drug costs down. Um, and they have imposed caps on insulin copayments in other states. And what California is saying is, we're just going to bypass the pharmaceutical companies altogether and their high drug prices for insulin and make our own cheaper versions and put those out there in the marketplace, which, you know, makes a lot of sense. Um, the problem with the legislation that we are talking about, the Inflation Reduction Act, is that it was considered in this sort of arcane budget reconciliation process, which 
only certain provisions can be included in those types of bills. And this applying the inflation, um, uh, sorry, the insulin cap to people with private insurance was determined to be sort of outside the rules. And so that had to be removed um, from the legislation before it could pass the Senate. But it is definitely still on policymakers' radar. They know that people are struggling with insulin. If you've paid any attention to prescription drug policy debates over the last several years, insulin is the drug that everybody talks about because it's a life-saving medication and nobody should be faced with, can I pay for my insulin or pay for my groceries? That is just not a decision that we should put anybody through. So what California is doing is groundbreaking. What this legislation will do will help people with Medicare. There is still a gap um, that needs to be filled. And I think there is an expectation that policymakers um, in Washington, D.C. will come back at this later this year. Juliet Kubansky, Deputy Director of the Program on Medicare Policy at the Kaiser Family Foundation. We're talking about the prescription drug components of the Inflation Reduction Act uh, with her this hour. And I also want to bring in another guest um, briefly who did some reporting on insulin with regards to the Latino community. Astrid Galvan, the editor at Axios Latino. Welcome to Forum. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So you reported a piece entitled How the Failure to Cap Insulin Prices Impacts Latinos. You told our producers that story was prompted by a tweet you read. Uh, what was that tweet and, and what struck a chord for you? Um, well, I think, you know, uh, as a Latino, like diabetes is kind of front of mind um, growing up. It's so prevalent in Latino communities and, and definitely in mine. And um, the tweet that I was referring to was um, I want to say it was uh, U.S. Congressman uh, Joaquin Castro tweeting about how his mom, his grandmother had died of diabetes complications. His mom has diabetes and how this cap is just, um, or, or the lack of the cap is is really problematic. And it just kind of struck a chord with me and made me think of, you know, this really huge population that really is sometimes ignored. Yeah. So let's get into some specifics that you reported. How are Latinos impacted when the government doesn't cap insulin prices for those who are insured or have private insurance? Yeah, so Latinos are 70% more likely to have diabetes um, than non-Hispanic white Americans, which is to me just a shocking figure. Um, there, you know, some of the things that that lead to diabetes, like a poor diet, a lack of exercise, those are things that, um, you know, health insurance, those are things that um, many Latinos don't have access to because they work in blue collar uh, jobs. Uh, you know, they're, they're struggling to put food on the table. And so it, this, you know, getting medical checkups um, and, and buying um, healthier food is just sometimes not an option. Yeah. And you also noted in the piece that the cost of insulin has doubled in the past few years. Why does that um, disproportionately affect people of color and Latinos especially? I know you started doing that, but if there was any other factors that were worth highlighting. Yeah, I think the other important factor is just the lack of access to health insurance in general. I think that really impacts um, when prices go up. Well, Astri Galvan, thank you for you know, highlighting this for this particular community. Is this something you anticipate following a little bit more as this legislation rolls out? Absolutely. It's something we're going to keep an eye on at Axios Latino. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, thank you. Astri Gavan, editor at Axios Latino.
And you, our listeners, are also welcome to to add in your experiences, your stories, and your questions about prescription drug pricing, um, your experience with it. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Get in touch on Twitter, Facebook. Uh, we're at KQED Forum. And, of course, email us at forum at kqed.org. And so, Julia Kubansky, why does the Inflation Reduction Act being a reconciliation bill affect whether or not it could have covered people with private insurance or no insurance, basically anyone not on Medicare, right? So there are certain rules that govern reconciliation legislation, such as the Inflation Reduction Act. Kind of wonky and weedy, but generally speaking, provisions in reconciliation bills have to be, you know, directly related to the federal government in terms of spending, revenues, deficits. Um, and so that's kind of why we see this bill having much of an impact on Medicare prescription drug spending and really no provisions that apply very directly to anything outside of the Medicare program, because those are ruled sort of out of order when it comes to what can be in and out of a reconciliation bill. So there was a provision to apply this insulin copayment cap to people with private insurance. That was stricken from the bill. There was also a provision that would have applied these inflation rebates to use by people with private insurance and people with Medicare. All we're left with is just that the inflation rebate now applies to use by people with Medicare only. So because, you know, the Senate parliamentarian, who is the person who kind of makes these official determinations that provisions can be kept in reconciliation or have to be stricken from reconciliation. So there are some things sort of on the cutting room floor that were left behind. Okay. Well, we asked the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America to join the show. Uh, Deborah DeShong, Executive Vice President of Public Affairs at Pharma, um, provided this statement for us. Quote, the current bill doesn't take a balanced approach and it doesn't address many of the real affordability challenges patients face. Unfortunately, it will jeopardize future innovation and patient access to life-saving medicines while at the same time ignoring others in the system like insurers and pharmacy benefit managers who ultimately determine what patients are paying out of pocket at the pharmacy counter. There's still time for Congress to improve this bill in a way that could provide real relief for patients. Uh, we're coming up on the break again, but just briefly, Juliet Kubanski, in your opinion, is there merit to that that argument that pharma puts forth? So the pharmaceutical industry is obviously wanting to protect its bottom line, um, but I think the reality is that how this legislation rolls out will be a lot more complicated. But I don't expect that we'll see dramatic problems with regard to access to new medications. The, the industry will continue to have plenty of incentive to bring new products to market and will continue to reap a lot of profits from new drugs that become available in the coming years. Okay, well, we can pick up the, the rest of this part of the conversation after the break. Juliet Kubanski, Deputy Director of the Program on Medicare Policy at the Kaiser Family Foundation. We'll have more of our conversation about the prescription drug components of the Inflation Reduction Act on Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. We're talking about the prescription drug components of the Inflation Reduction Act poised to pass the House on Friday. I'm talking with Juliet Kubansky, Deputy Director of the Program on Medicare Policy with the Kaiser Family Foundation. And you, our listeners, welcome to add your questions and your stories. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Email us forum at KQED. And so before the break, I'd read the statement um, from Pharma in response to this bill. And, you know, their main critiques are that it could jeopardize innovation, that pharmaceutical industries will need to recoup money spent on research and development, and also that drugs, while expensive, are cheaper than other treatments like surgery. Um, So you were beginning to give your response, but I'd uh, just love to hear your response to to those um, critiques. Right. So the Congressional Budget Office otherwise known as CBO, which is Congress's official scorekeeper for legislation, has looked at this question of what will the impact on pharmaceutical research and development and the innovation of new drugs be? And according to their estimates, all of the provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act will impact the number of new drugs coming to market over the next 30 years by about 1%, or over the next 30 years, we'll see about 1,300 new drugs coming to market, and we'll have maybe 15 fewer of them as a result of the, the drug provisions in this bill. That suggests to me that the impact on research and development will be quite modest. Um, I think it's also important to note that the drug negotiation provision specifically only works with drugs that have been on the market for several years. So pharmaceutical companies will still have the incentive to bring new drugs to market and for many years, a decade or more, will have the opportunity to sort of generate revenue from sales of those products before they might become eligible for the negotiation process. So I think there's still plenty of incentive here in this legislation for pharmaceutical companies to continue to do what they do best, which is bring great new products to market that do help keep people healthy, prevent diseases, you know, treat cancer and other, you know, really serious illnesses. So, uh, you know, it's hard to imagine that companies will just kind of cease existing altogether as a result of this legislation, which I think brings some modest pricing reforms to the table, um, but isn't likely to sort of decimate uh, investments in research and development moving forward. Okay. Well, let's go to caller Karen and Ventura. Karen, you're on. Hi, good morning. I was just going to say maybe I need to go take a pill. 
because I'm kind of nauseated. You know, Big Pharma, they, they're mad now. They're pouting and whining and having a little conip and fit because they can't squeeze more money out of Medicare, which is tax dollars. They get huge tax expense deductions. They have special rules in the tax code just for Big Pharma. So that's more tax dollars they're getting. It's just nauseating that more corporate welfare. I think we we really need to nip this in the bud. Um, may I make one more comment? Or do sure, you have a Karen, go ahead. Yep, go ahead. You know, I just I just heard that their politicians want to open in California places where drug addicts can go to use drugs safely. Okay, I'm I'm okay with that, but not until. Every single, the old lady down the street who needs insulin, when she can get her insulin at affordable price, okay, how about the guy next door is a heart medicine? When we've taken care of them first, then we can open up for-profit clinics to help drug addicts use just my personal, maybe I'm hard-hearted, but well, my opinion. Well, I think you're also just raising an issue, Karen, where we shouldn't be having to make those kinds of decisions as a society. I think you, you know, Juliet, you were talking about, you know, that in internal household decisions of light bill insulin. And then, you know, that goes, you you know, you go, you zoom out a little bit more on, on society than where it's like we have to choose one issue to tackle and another. And it, it can feel that way because we've kind of been put in this space of feeling like there's scarcity, but there really isn't. And you know, we have this fragmented system of insurance with, you know, as I said earlier, some folks have Medicaid and they're very fortunate to have, you know, Medicaid, Medicare, private insurance. But we also have a lot of people who don't have health insurance who I think, frankly, struggle the most with health care bills and prescription drug costs in particular. You know, the, this legislation is not, you know, the solution to every problem that we have, but it does uh, you know, put sort of um, a, draws a line in the sand with the pharmaceutical industry to some extent and says, you've got to stop raising drug prices, you know, skyrocketing from one year to the next. Um, and, you know, for the first time gives Medicare a role at the table in prescription drug negotiations. And then I think, you know, for, for people, really the, the tangible benefit of an out-of-pocket spending cap is I think we just you know, can't really overstate how important that is um, for older adults. Most people on Medicare, many people on Medicare have incomes of $30,000 a year. So as as David was saying earlier, if his drug bills are $15,000 a year, that's half of his annual income. That's not really a sustainable <laughs> approach to getting people access to the medications that they need. And, you know, to the pharmaceuticals industry's point about, you know, people losing access to new treatments, if people can't afford to pay for their medications, that is kind of the same thing as not having access to those medications. So it doesn't really do us good as a society to have new drugs come to market that do great things, you know, that might really cure David's multiple myeloma. But if he can't afford them, they don't help. So I think, you know, we've got to put solutions in place that really address problems that people have with lots of different types of insurance or no insurance whatsoever. 
again, this legislation isn't perfect in, in terms of helping everybody, but it does offer real relief to people with Medicare, and, and that seems like a good place to start. And is there anything you're worried about when it comes to this bill? Well, I think one of the concerns is, from a political perspective, whether some of these provisions might be undermined over the course of the next few years. We've got elections coming up that could change control of Congress, you know, a presidential election coming up in a couple of years, depending on if there's a new administration in the White House, they may have different priorities. There's always the ability for legislation to be, you know, kind of pushed off or, um, you know, regulations to be rewritten. That's definitely something that we, I think, are going to be looking out for. But for policymakers to pull back, once these benefits are in place, in particular, these important changes to the party program, I don't expect that we will see a reversal of that provision specifically, because both Democrats and Republicans have endorsed that change um, in, in terms of adding this out-of-pocket cap. It's really the, the drug negotiation provision, the inflation rebate provision, where there is more political disagreement, more partisan disagreement. Those are provisions that could potentially be more vulnerable. But I think once we see the federal government savings, which will be significant, it'll be difficult to, to pull them back once they're in place. But it's definitely something to watch out for. Well, let's go to another listener question. Nikki in Berkeley. Nikki, you're on. Hi. Thanks for the program. Um, I'm on Medicare, and I have so there are some drugs that I can't get because I'm on Medicare. Like, uh, I don't have Parkinson's, but Parkinson's are migraine medicines that I can't afford and I can't get. And I can't, you, if you're on Medicare or Medi-Cal, you can't get the supposed special deals on the side. Is there anything to do about that? It just seems discriminatory. Do you know what I mean? There are ways you can apply to uh, a company, supposedly, to get the medication. But the, one of the first questions is, are you on Medicare or Medi-Cal? And if you are, then it's a hard no. Yeah. And kind of on the same vein as, as Nikki, thank you for your, your question. Uh, listener Gina writes, many people have a supplemental plan for Medicare. Will those people get the out-of-pocket cap? So, yes, to, to the caller's question, there are company pharmaceutical company programs that provide their drugs available for very low cost or free for people who don't have insurance or people who fall below certain levels of income. Some of those programs are available to people with Medicare, but not all of them. Um, and I think what's important to know is that this out-of-pocket cap of $2,000 will help on the affordability side. In terms of some drugs maybe being covered or not, under the Medicare drug benefit program right now, drug coverage varies from one plan to another. Depending on which plan you're in, it might not cover the medication that you need. So there is an opportunity every year for people with Medicare to switch from one drug plan to another. So if coverage is the problem, then I think it's worth looking into whether another plan in your area might offer better coverage. Um, but the cost issue, we hope that will be, you know, dealt with um, in a significant way with the out-of-pocket cap. Well, listener Gregory writes, however criminally expensive these drugs are, how exactly do the drug companies arrive at the prices they charge? 
we don't really know those um you know prices how they're set um you know one imagines that they take into account how much of an investment was made in the research and development of those products but sometimes it often appears the case that there's kind of a price matching going on with competitor products so we don't really have a lot of insight. California does have a law that requires um, some transparency in price arrangements. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, we have a system that lets drug companies set prices for their products at kind of whatever level they want. Um, and the government has no role in, in setting those prices for new drugs that come to market. But, you know, the good news is that this this bill will, will give Medicare a role in determining prices for specific products once they come to market and have been on the market for several years. Well, we're talking about the prescription drug components of the Inflation Reduction Act with Juliet Kubansky, Deputy Director of the Program on Medicare Policy with the Kaiser Family Foundation. I'm Ariana Prail and Fermina Kim, and you're listening to Forum. So I have a, a comment from listener Anne uh, that I want to get your, your thoughts on as well. Anne writes, the ridiculous rise in drug prices has been problematic for pharmacies and their staff. Having to inform a patient about the copay that is required of the patient is never something that any pharmacist or pharmacy technician enjoys having to do. It is not why we become healthcare practitioners. Unfortunately, many patients vent their anger on the pharmacy staff rather than taking the time to voice their complaints to the insurance company, legislators, manufacturers, and others who can actually do something about it. Please remember that a little kindness and understanding extended to the pharmacy staff can go a long way. Again, kind of providing a picture of some of those ripple effects that are that are unintended when people feel feel the strain. And so I'm wondering, yeah, if you just have any reflections on what Anne wrote. And then also maybe talk a little bit about advocacy groups like David Mitchell's, who we spoke with earlier, how they're what their role is in this bigger picture and what impact they're having. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, at the pharmacy counter, yeah, you've got to have sympathy for pharmacists and pharmacy technicians who, you know, are tearing their hair up behind the scenes to get medications to patients who present at the pharmacy counter. And I'm sure, you know, it must be heartbreaking to have a patient walk away when that you tell them how much the drug costs and they don't have the money or they whip out their credit card and go deeper into debt in order to afford their medications. So, you know, there's that financial side of it. And and I also know, you know, the farm the the pharmacy industry is, you know, struggling financially, like a lot of other industries. But um so I think again, you know, back to this legislation and the effects that it will have for people on Medicare, you know, hopefully this will at least make it so that, you know, fewer people kind of walk away without the medications that they need. Um, I, you know, I, I think that is something we can all hope for. And I'm sure, you know, pharmacists around the country are probably hoping for the same thing. Yeah. And that's an, and flagging that, you know, redirect it toward, you know, your legislators and things. And so, um, yeah, what what does the advocacy landscape look like? Is that, you know, speaking to some of your concerns in terms of, um, you know, what party will be in the White House or, you know, have the majority in Congress? What is, yeah, will advocacy continue to, to play a significant role potentially that could help curb some of 
You know, I think um, the advocacy community has played a really important role in bringing to the table the voice of patients like David Mitchell um, and his group and others who have continued to beat the drum for policymakers on the Hill um, that prescription drug prices are a real problem and affordability is a real problem and something needs to be done about it and haven't really let policymakers off the hook. Um, you know, we've heard policymakers talking for years about doing something about prescription drug prices. And I think the advocacy, advocacy community has been good at reminding them that up until now, really not much has changed. It's been all talk and no action. So I think we'll we'll continue to see a vital role for the advocacy community as these provisions of this bill, assuming it becomes law, roll out over the next few years. I think we'll also see advocates continue to remind policymakers that the job's not finished, that people without insurance are still struggling with their insulin costs and with the cost of other medical care that they need. Um, that will continue to be an important voice to be heard uh, in Washington, D.C. and in state capitals around the country. I think I have time to squeeze in one more caller. Lewis and Saratoga. Lewis, you're on. And just we're coming up on the end, but quickly. Lewis, are you there? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Hello. Yes. Hello. Go right ahead. Oh, hi. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I just wanted to comment on uh, one of the things that I noticed was when the vaccines came out and how that was a really a massive government buying program. And I was able to walk in, uh, get a vaccine for free for COVID. And I was able to walk out without paying a dime. And it was it really showed how the government can be effective at uh, buying and distributing medicines to the people that need it most. And so, you know, I hear all the, the commercials that are being spammed at me from the drug companies and insurance companies about how this government price, it's all fear tactics. And uh, it's really frustrating that it will potentially work on a subset of the population of some of those uh, tactics. So um, I just want to kind of comment that, my yeah. experience. Yeah, thanks for that comment, Lewis. And so final thoughts, Juliet Kubiansky. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important point. Um, you know, the government did play a really important role in bringing these, you know, COVID treatments and, and vaccines to market and played a role in negotiating what those prices will be. So that set a really important precedent that I think can be useful in this Medicare drug price negotiation that will be put in place over the next few years. So, you know, I think it's it's good news that we're having this conversation um, after having a lot of conversations about will they or won't they do anything on prescription drug prices. So people with Medicare, I think, have um, are in a good position to look forward to, you know, tremendous cost savings uh, if they need high cost drugs or if, um, you know, they don't need them right now, they might in the future. We probably all know somebody who's struggling with affordability. So good, good changes are, are coming. Well, thanks for having the conversation with me. Juliet Kubansky, Deputy Director of the Program on Medicare Policy at the Kaiser Family Foundation. Earlier, we heard from David Mitchell, founder of Patients for Affordable Drugs and Patients for Affordable Drugs Now, and also Astrid Galvan, editor at Axios Latino. Thanks to Caroline Smith for producing today's segment. I'm Ariana Prail, and for Mina Kim, this is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, 
the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.